We're going to look at this morning, Romans chapter 12, but, uh, and, and look at what it is to be a living sacrifice, which is what Paul leads off with in this glorious chapter. But first, if you know a little bit about how I like to teach, I call it zoom out, zoom in. We're going to zoom out. We're going to, we're going to start in chapter one of the book of Romans and we're going to fly over it. We're going to touch down in a few spots. But it's very important um, that we do this from time to time. I, I, I hearken back to my Bible school days where every book that we... And, and I'm not going to try to teach this like a Bible school class. However, we are studying God's Word and we do want to understand it. And one of the requirements that I had when I was in school was, yes, we were studying through books verse by verse, just like we do here. Uh, and, and that was essentially what my education was, was learning how to do that. However, once a week throughout the entire semester, we were required to sit down and read that book in one setting and, and start to finish in the book of Romans, the gospel, whatever it was we were studying. And the reason is, is that we need to see this as a literary whole, even though what we do is we go through and, and, and we, we examine God's word verse by verse. And that's a good thing. And, and, and we apply it to our lives. And it's really important for us to get the entire flow of the book, the letter in this case, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And, and so we're going to do that this morning. And, and you'll see why. Now, when we get to chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see why that directly applies to the passage that we're in this morning. We're going to get into two whole verses this morning. So uh, contrasted to last week where, where we went ripping through 20-some <laughs> verses in chapter 11. We're going to slow it down. We're going to zoom out, and then then we'll spend some time, and we'll zoom in on cha- chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So what we've looked at here in the book of Romans, and this is there are different ways that people outline these things. This is not, <laughs> it's not cast in stone. However, the, the way that I like to outline this is, it's in sections. And we've looked at five sections in this book to date. The first section would be the theme of the book. And it's in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul talks about, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So what is the book of Romans about? The gospel of Christ. That is the central theme. I mean, and we have to see Jesus in this. He says, he goes on and says, for it's the power of God to salvation. What's this salvation thing he's talking about? We'll get into that. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we see here the gospel of Christ. We also refer to as the gospel of grace because it's the grace of God poured out in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, if the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Salvation from what? He goes from that into the very next verse after he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Uh, and he begins to talk about the justice of God, that all are under sin. And he goes into from the middle of chapter 1 all the way through near the end of chapter 3 talking about what we are saved from. Primarily from ourselves. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So when we look at this, we go into through the rest of chapter one. He talks about first, he talks about the condemnation of the Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish. And what he's talking about is the heathen world at, in that day is saying that they stand condemned. They, their ignorance of God is willful. They're not just saying, well, I choose not. They're, no, they're saying they're not just saying, well, I accidentally didn't include God. They're saying, no, I don't want God. Their disobedience to God is willful. They're choosing, choosing to not uh, have anything to do with him, to not have any regard for God. So we go from that into the, the next part of, of this condemnation that spreads to all men, into the condemnation of the moral person. And this is the person that, that kind of looks at the first group and says, ha, look at how, you know, look at those heathens, look at those filthy people, look at those people that, man, oh man, you know, they're just, they're criminal in their ways, and they're, and, and I mean, they're really the, the worst. And essentially what Paul says is not so fast. God doesn't save people based on their moral uh, bearing. He, that's not part of it. He, he's not saving you because you're a morally upright person. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you're inex- inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge, you who judge, practice the same things. A lot of that going on out there. So he moves from there into the condemnation of the Jew. Now, he's systematically here talking about the condemnation of each group, and he's going to wrap it up with the condemnation of all men. The, the, The Jew, though, he specifically calls them out because they thought that they had the law of God, the law of Moses, and that they were good. Problem is, they couldn't keep the law of God. The other thing is that they couldn't, they didn't believe the promises of God. So, they stood condemned. Finally, at the, in the last or the first two thirds of chapter three, he talks about in verse nineteen. He says, "All the world is guilty before God." So, what are we saved from? What is salvation? It's the power of God for salvation from ourselves, from our sin. That's why Jesus came. So then he he pivots in chapter three, verse twenty one. And he begins to talk about this thing called righteousness and that by faith it is imputed to us. That's a, that's a theological term. What it means is that the moment that you come to faith in Christ, that you are dipped, you are placed, that you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. That the way that you are saved is through imputed righteousness. Now, this is the power of God to salvation that he talks about there in chapter one. That you don't have to be condemned. You don't have to stand condemned before God. So as you, as we look at this, this imputed righteousness that we're justified, that's the, just as if I'd never sinned, but we've talked about that when we were in that section in Romans. Far beyond that, it goes way beyond just as though I never sinned. It means that I have been seated in the heavenlies, that I wear the righteousness of Christ. And that's how God sees me. When I, when I blow it, when I sin, is the father there? We talked about the courtroom, you know, and is the father, the son says to the father, no, 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 you don't judge that. He belongs to me. He's covered by my righteousness. Way beyond, just as though I'd never sinned. 
in, in chapter 3, verse 21, we talk about what that righteousness is. Whose righteousness? What is this righteousness thing that he's talking about? And in verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the laws revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's that concept, that reality, that the righteousness of God is placed on me at the moment of my conversion. Moving on in chapter 4, as we're flying over these passages and, and we're moving quickly, but... I want to get to the text in Romans 12 this morning, but this does bear, it comes to bear on what we're talking about. Chapter 4, he gives an example of this imputed righteousness from the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Abraham's faith was apart from works. Abraham's faith was apart from circumcision. Abraham's faith was apart from the law. The law hadn't been given yet. And he goes on to say that Abraham believed God, and we're told that back in Genesis, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he went to the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead, that death couldn't hold him. And in believing in the the person and the work of Christ, that righteousness belongs to me. That righteousness is placed in my account in inexhaustible measure. I cannot outsin the grace of God. We've looked at that here where uh, Paul says, well, that where sin abounds, grace superabounds, that you can't outsin the grace of God. So in the first half of chapter five, we talk about the benefits of righteousness. In chapter five, verses eight and nine, he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So the wrath of God that he talks about, he goes, he talks about the gospel there in chapter one, and then all the way through chapter three, he talks about the wrath of God. He talks about the judgment of God. He talks about the justice of God, that God is a just God. He must judge sin. It's, it's, it's central to understanding the gospel. He says, but wait. Jesus went to that cross to justify me, to take away my sins, to give me the righteousness of God as a free gift. The other thing he talks about in chapter 5, in verses 12 to 21, he talks about Adam. And he says, by one man sin entered the world, there at the fall, there with Adam and Eve, there in the garden when they took of the fruit and they ate and and, and God pronounced judgment on them. He says that we were born in Adam. We inherit Adam's nature. But Jesus there, he talks about in chapter 5 of this wonderful letter, Jesus being the second Adam came to set things right, came to remove the curse for any who would believe that now we're taken out of Adam by death with Christ. In that, we're reckoned, remember we looked at that, it's an accounting term. He says, you're reckoned as dead to sin. So that's righteousness imputed, justification. We're justified before God. We have his righteousness. The next thing we looked at in the fourth section that we've been in here in Romans is that righteousness imparted. There's a difference. What it means is that we have been sanctified. We have been declared holy. Not only have we been declared sinless, we've been declared holy before God. 
Now, at the moment of my conversion, I am, I am right, his righteousness is imparted to me. I am declared holy. God sees me as being holy. He sees me as being morally pure. Now, what God begins to do in my life is to then practically cause me to become more holy, to become more like him. That's the process of sanctification that every believer is involved in. So as we go along, as we have now this relationship with Christ, as we understand his great love for us, we understand that he's removed our sins. He begins now to do this beautiful work in each of our hearts. And that's where he is sanctifying us. And the word, the Latin word for sanctified is sanctus. And, it, and it's what it means is holy. It's the Latin word for holy is sanctus. And he is holifying us is literally how you could say that. He's also separated us. He says, I don't want you to live like the world around you anymore. We'll talk about that this morning as we get further into the study. As he is sanctifying us, as he is setting us apart, he is calling us to live lives that are different. We've talked about that. We've talked about the principles of sanctification in chapter 6, where we're called to live a different kind of life. And that's true. We looked at liberty versus license there in chapter 6, where uh, he says, well, in view of God's grace, shall we continue to sin? And, and he says, God forbid, may it never be. No, 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 a very emphatic no, that's not it. How shall someone who has died to sin still live in it? So shall we continue to sin? And should we continue in sin? No, that nature has been taken away. It is now, yeah, we pack around this corpse. Talked about that, being chained to a corpse, trying to drag that thing around. That's how it is sometimes in this life. Because because it's always there trying to express itself. But the dominant nature that we have now is spirit, not flesh. And so how do we how do we how do we move about in this life? And again, we looked at that, we had some big graphics on the screen and all that. Not going to go further into that, but essentially when he talks about that, he's talking about the practice of sanctification. In chapter seven. We looked at the tailspin. We looked at where I shared the story, if you remember, if you were here, of when I was learning to fly and I was on final approach to the airport, got hit by wind shear and the stall warning indicator went off in my ear and that plane started to fall out of the sky. And the only thing that could be done when that was taking place was my instructor. I was flying the plane. I was in the left side of the cockpit. He was next to me and he just screamed, hands off. And I, I threw my hands back and I still got the sand and I'm thinking I'm about to die. <laughs> and, and, and he took that plane and he pointed it straight at the ground and he put full throttle, uh, or full power on the throttle because the only way that you can recover from a stall is to get your airspeed up. I was a dumb pilot at that point. I was just trying to figure it out. My impulse was pull up. No, if I, <laughs> if I had to pull my hands off, I would have killed us. That would have been it. So Paul here in, in, in Romans 7, it's like he's in this dive. He's like, how do I get out of this cycle of understanding that with my mind, I want to serve the law of God. With my flesh, I don't. And I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. And I'm just messed up. We looked at that. We looked at, is the believer under law? The answer is no. That the effect of the law was terminated at the cross. And if you, if your life is hidden in Christ, there, the law does not apply. No, it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It is not in effect 
in our lives. That doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Remember, we looked at it. It's like the law is a speed limit sign. So is, can the law cause death? No. Any, not any more than, than the sign that says 55 out on the highway uh, can kill me. It, it, no, it is there to remind me of what sin is. Is the law evil? No, it's an expression of God's heart. And God is anything but evil. He is pure and holy. There's nothing in him that is evil. Cannot be. He wouldn't be God if he could be. Sin is the cause of death. It's the cause of physical death. Man was designed to live in perfect communion with God. But more than that, it's the cause of the second death. What the Bible refers to as a second death. We see in God's word that there are two births and two deaths. Everybody gets three. You're either born physically and born again of the spirit, in which case you may see a physical death, but there's no judgment. The justice of God has been satisfied. Or you're born physically and you die here. And then there's what the Bible refers to in the book of Revelation as the second death, the great white throne of judgment, because judgment was never satisfied in your life through the person in the work of Christ. How important is it that if we don't believe that we come to believe? How important is it that my eternity is secured by faith in Christ? So we went from there, well, at the end of chapter 7, it's essentially what Paul is is doing. He's saying, how can I resolve the monumental struggle that's within me? I am just, like I said, I messed up. He says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And I love chapter 8. Because where chapter 6 talks about the principles of sanctification. Chapter 7 talks about the practice of sanctification. Chapter 8 talks about the power of a sanctified life, the power to live, the power to live life in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit of God, indwelling me, indwelling you, if you belong to Christ. He begins that chapter with with saying, praise be to God. There's no condemnation now to any who are in Christ Jesus. We looked at that, the sanctified life, the life in the spirit. We looked at, remember, I I put up a thing of Mount Everest and and we did a a series of hikes up the mountain. It just seemed like a good metaphor to me. And and we looked at the, the fact that we're no longer condemned. Condemnation has passed away from my life. That whole condemnation he talks about in chapters one through three is gone because I'm a new creation in Christ. As a result, my life has radically changed. Oh, I look the same on the outside. <laughs> what a bummer. But my heart, I've been given a new heart. I've been given a new nature. I've been given a new life. And, and, and for anybody who has experienced this transforming work, as the Spirit comes in, our priorities just begin to shift. And perhaps old habits just begin to come out of the way. It's not that I'm trying to be a good person, but I just end up being a better person because I want to glorify God in my life. I want to walk in the spirit. I don't want to walk in the flesh. We've looked at that. We've looked at what that flesh is and how much it's always yanking, tugging at our hearts to express itself. We've looked at the fact that we're sons and daughters of God. 
that there's a relationship there, that he is our father and that we're brothers and sisters if we identify with Christ. And we moved through that, looked for uh, extensively at what it is to suffer as a Christian. Because you belong to Christ, does that mean that you won't suffer, that you won't go through things in this life? Not at all. In some regards, I believe that we go through more because our life is now being tested. We're being tried. We're being purified. Part of that purifying process, as James says in chapter one of the book of James, he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The word trials there is pyrosmos. It's where we get pyro. He's talking about when you go through fiery ordeals because they produce a purifying of your faith a purifying of your life, a conforming work in your life. As we looked at in chapter 8, and, and, and we look at where God says, that, or the, the word says, God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so often people quote that, but they don't move into the next verse, which tells us what that purpose is. And that purpose is for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he is causing us to be, to act, to conduct our lives more like Jesus every day. Part of that sanctifying work, part of that set apart work that he's doing in every one who belongs to him. The question becomes, are you cooperating with that work? We're going to talk a bit about carnality this morning. Because we can choose to not cooperate. We can still belong to God and choose to not cooperate. And it is a very difficult place to live. I've mentioned before, it's like trying to live your life with one foot on a pier and one foot in a boat. You you know, when you first get into the boat and it kind of does this, try to live that way the whole time. I I mean, it's just not, it's an unstable place. And that's what James, again, James says, the the double-minded man, the guy who's carnally minded, spiritually minded, that he's unstable in all of his ways. He can't expect he's going to receive anything from God. But we've looked at what it is to, to live a life that counts for Christ. Also in chapter 8, we looked at future glory. The fact that There's more to it than this. There's more to this life than what we see, what we experience with our senses. Praise God. So then at the end of chapter 8, there's another shift. Paul pivots again. And we've talked about if you went from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 12, there would be a continual flow, but he stops. And he begins to talk about his countrymen according to the flesh. That's how he... Uh, characterizes it. And what he's talking about are the Jews. He's talking about Israel. And and here in in chapter 9, he talks about Israel's past. Talks about election, that God is a choosing God. Uh, And if you remember when we were there, we were talking about how the Jews, they loved it when God chose things that benefited them. He reaches back into their history. He says, look, This is what God's done. He actually set you apart to be his chosen people. And they went, yay, good. We love that. But then when it came to Christ and when it came to God's choice of Messiah and his method of salvation, they said, we don't like that so much. 
And essentially what Paul says there in chapter 9, he, well, he begins with his sorrow, that he, his, the great sorrow he has towards his countrymen, which is remarkable to me because when he wrote this, they were still trying to kill him. They were chasing him all over the empire, trying to take his life. Several times hatching schemes, several times getting really close to accomplishing that. And yet he has this great sorrow in his heart. But then he moves into talking about the sovereignty of God. And he likens us and God to the potter and the clay. And he essentially says, the clay doesn't get to tell the potter what to do. It doesn't work that way. He says, who are you, old man, who, to answer back to God? Can't the thing, can the thing molded say to the potter that you can't make vessels for glory and vessels for destruction? He's saying it doesn't work that way. So when we look at chapter 9, we're looking at Israel's past. Chapter 10 moves into Israel's present and the fact that Israel has rejected Messiah. And that rejection still rests on them as a people. <laughs> Paul says, look, and again, just picking out a couple of verses that I think are, they, that just nail it. He says, the Gentiles weren't even looking for salvation. They weren't even looking and they stumbled in. And, and God gave, he put, he just pushed the, 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 the gospel out to the Gentiles and said, for anybody that comes, come. We talked about, you know, the wedding feast where Jesus said, you know, go out and these are my invited guests. And they went, ah, we don't have time. He says, well, fine. Go out and invite everybody. Good people, bad people. Go out, go invite everybody. (laughs) And and they do. (laughs) And, and, And that's exactly God's heart towards the Jews. Their rejection, present rejection is real. Israel at this moment is a secularized nation. And yet, as we get into chapter 11, Israel's future, we see that God's not finished with them. Anyway, that salvation will come to the Jews. But that it's not going to come to the Jews nationally. It's not going to come to them uh, just because of the fact that they're Jewish. The salvation will come to a remnant. That there will be some that form Israel at the end of the age. Those are the ones. We could go into a whole thing in the book of Revelation. So, but he, he essentially says in, in chapter 11 that Israel's rejection is partial. There will be a remnant. He also says because of their rejection that God extended the gospel to the Gentiles and part of his purpose is in that. It doesn't mean that he minimizes the Gentiles, but part of his purpose is in that was to provoke Israel to jealousy. We talked about being on the platform at the train station. The train is loading up and, and, and God is saying, Israel, you've got the best seats. And they say, no, 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 we don't want to go. So he says, all right, well, let's fill that train with the, with the Gentiles. Now I want you to keep looking in the windows, Israel, because that should be you. And it's not because you're hard-hearted and you reject. But the rejection is only partial. They will board the train. Israel's rejection is temporary because we see in God's word that in that day, he goes out to the end of the age. He goes out to the the great tribulation. He goes into the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Last week it was the lights. Today it's the microphone. (laughs) Go figure. Anyway, 
But he goes out, and so he talks about, God's not finished with these people. He is not done. That brings us to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, verse 1, through the middle of chapter 15, this is, I, I will freely confess, this is my favorite part of this book, of this letter. Why? Because Paul takes all of the things that he's been talking about, and now he begins to apply them. And, and there is great application for your life and mine in this section. What he's going to talk about here is living in this whole section, living the Christian life. So what is it? What is it? How do we conduct ourselves in light of the things that we know, of the things that we've learned, the things that we've summarized this morning? Good question. Chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to spend some time in verses 1 and 2. We won't get any further. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> There's a lot here. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Folks, this verse is packed. We're going to break it down. We're going to take some time breaking it down uh, section by section in here. But there is so much going on here uh, that it, we, have to, we have to spend some time with this. So the first thing that we look at in chapter 12, verse 1, is he says, I beseech you. Now, yeah, granted, that's a Bible word. <laughs> you know, I don't walk up to my wife and say, honey, I beseech you to make lunch. That's not going to work. But it is an important word and there's an important distinction. And there's a reason that he uses this word. Now, in different translations, if you have other than the, the New King James, this is what I'm teaching out of, uh, you'll see a different word there. In the New American Standard, he says, I urge you. In the English Standard Version, he says, I appeal to you. In the New Living Translation, I plead with you. So what's interesting is this is, this doesn't rise to the level of a command. He's saying, essentially what it means is, I, when he says, I, I beseech you, it, the best English translation is, I beg you, please. Philemon, verses 8 and 9, uh, interesting, we, we can shed a little bit of light on, on chapter 12, verse 1 here in Romans by looking at that. And, and he says there, he says, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to or I beseech you. Same word that he uses there. So he's saying, I, I, I have the authority. I, as an apostle, he had the authority to command people. I mean, he had apostolic authority. And if he said it, then that was what was going to carry the day. However, this is a heart word. This is a word that he's saying he's appealing to our will. And when he says, I beseech you, he's saying, I appeal to the inner man, the inner woman. I am, I beg you, please pay attention to what I'm about to say. God calls us to make a choice about the way in which we will live for him. We've looked at that. We've looked at he has opened the door. He has empowered us to live for Christ. He's a choosing God. We looked at that when we were talking about Israel, that when he, they liked his choices or they didn't like his choices, didn't change the fact that he chooses the manner in which he relates to us. They didn't like the way he did, but 
We've already discussed that. But that's what it means when we speak of understanding God's will. So when Paul here is saying, I beseech you, he's saying, for love's sake, I appeal to you. I appeal to your will. Now, having come to Christ by faith, God now appeals to you and I to choose the manner in which we relate to him. Now, we can choose to relate to him on the basis of what Christ has done, what he's accomplished in our lives, or we can choose not to. We've seen, we saw in, in earlier in this book where the wrath of God abides on people who choose not to, re- everybody has a relationship with God. It, it's just like the old saying, it, it, like when somebody talks about building a restaurant. There are three main things that, that uh, count when it comes to building a restaurant. And I would submit that the same things that count when it comes to how we relate to God. Location, location, location. Because you're either destined for heaven. Hell exists. So the point is that he chooses the manner that he relates to us. He has chosen the gospel of Christ. He chose to send his only begotten son. Now, we choose the way that we are going to respond to that call, that we're going to respond to that work that he's done. So the point is, is when my will is lined up with his will, when my will comes into sync with God's will, something remarkable happens. I want to live for him. That shift that we're talking about. I just want to live for Christ. I, I know I don't get it right. I don't get it right a lot. And yet the overwhelming desire of my heart is I want him to be first in my life. I want to live my life stepping over that line, which is living for myself or living for him. The point in this is that living for Christ can never be, I have to. That's not it. It should be, I want to. I get to. That's why Paul is not commanding here. He's saying, when he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's not saying I command you. It would be wrong for him to do that. Why? Because our response to the gospel of Christ is voluntary. It is a matter of our own will. I Am I willing to live for him? Am I willing to receive Christ as Lord? It's not a have to. It's a want to. Now, I want to caution you too. There's times where we deal with others where there's a, that, that claim to be a Christian and that you see a discrepancy between God's revealed will and the will or the life or the actions of the one that's claiming to be a Christian. We see that. And often when somebody is being talked about uh, or somebody's past or whatever will say, well, were, were they a Christian? And, and sometimes the, the answer is, well, I think so. I'm not sure. And usually what drives that is there was a discrepancy between what God says, what God reveals in his word, and the way that life was lived. And and that's, I mean, we've all experienced that. Maybe you're in that place if people were asking about you. (laughs) Take care of that this morning if that's the case. The point is, is that sometimes that's an open door for us to have dialogue with somebody. I mean, I, how many times have you, if you've done much witnessing to other people, sharing Christ with other people, and, and the, the response might be, well, my God would never fill in the blank, allow starving children in Africa. My God would never this, or my God would... So that's an inconsistency. Because if you understand God, if you belong to God, you know 
that we live on a fallen planet and that's a result of sin. That's a result of living on a fallen world. It's not God's fault. And yet, as we move through life, sometimes God shows us the inconsistency with somebody else and he gives us an opportunity to speak into that. We've got to be careful, folks. We can't presume that we can do the work of the Holy Spirit in another person's life as well. I've cautioned many times, be careful to presume that you know what's going on in another person's life and that you're the one that's got to wade into it and get it handled. Don't think you know what God's agenda is for the person sitting next to you. <laughs> and if you're married, especially when it comes to your spouse, that's a recipe for trouble. And it's a recipe for getting out of God's will. Allow him the room. But also, there's a balance in that. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, if, if a brother's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But don't fall into the trap of sinning and going to restore an erring brother. point in all of that uh, is that as we walk with the Lord, As we interact with other people, God calls us to have grace. Uh, Remember in chapter 11, verse 6, he says, And if by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. We're all broken in ways. Uh, It's not up to us to be the fruit inspector with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But when I clearly understand that I passed out of God's judgment into life, my response to his grace is humble, heartfelt obedience. That's what we're talking about, our response to the work that he's done. That's why it has to be I want to or I get to. It's never I have to. Inconsistent with the gospel. Second thing we see here in verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What is he talking about? The mercies of God. Folks, that is everything that we have studied in this letter up to this point. Think about it. He starts with the gospel in chapter one, that which we looked at. That's rooted in the mercy of God. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. He's merciful. So then he goes into the necessity of the gospel in looking at the condition of man in chapters one through three. We've looked at that this morning. Then from there until now, he's laid out in great detail the mercies of God, which are spoken of here. So when he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, he's referring back to all of the work that God has accomplished on your behalf and mine. It's all his mercy. We don't deserve any of it. Uh, I, I understand the sentiment when I, I, somebody might write in a card or say, you deserve happiness. <laughs> I just think in my heart, I think, no, I really don't. I deserve judgment, but by the grace of God, I can be happy. My point is, is that in Romans here, we've seen so far, we've seen the grace of God getting what we don't deserve in the gospel of Christ. That's what we've looked at. We've seen the justice of God. Now, getting what we do deserve in the fact that condemnation, death, applies to all men. And then here, we see the mercy of God. The mercy of God not getting what we deserve shown through the work that he's done. The mercies, uh, his mercies being that which we have been studying over all of these months. It's all by his mercy. He's saying, I just want to shower blessings upon your life. I want to shower 
my Holy Spirit in your life. I want to, I want to bathe you in my righteousness. I want to stand you up in my holiness. All of that is the mercies of God. Every bit of it. Not one thing do I merit. Not one thing do I have coming. Because he's a choosing God. He's also a blessing God. And he just delights in blessing his people. Here's some good advice. (laughs) The next time, and don't look at me with Sunday faces because we all do this sometimes. The next time that somebody rubs you (laughs) the wrong way and you're thinking maybe you're hoping that maybe they get theirs, consider the justice and the mercy of God. You don't want justice. I don't want justice in my life and I certainly don't want justice in yours. I want to walk in grace. I want to understand the mercy of God as it's extended to me. And it's extended to you. The third thing we look at here in verse 1. This is, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What on earth is he talking about? <laughs> well, let's get into it. So if you, if you understand the Old Testament, if you understand the word of God, you understand that in the Old Testament, there was the priestly service that they had a sacrificial system that if you sinned, then, you know, you would go and you would go to the priest there at the altar and you would transfer, you know, he would pray your sin into this animal and he'd slay the animal and you would be, you would find absolution. You, you wouldn't find the removal of sin, but you would experience a covering for sin. So here's the visual. I want you to picture four things. There's the altar of sacrifice, and that was a big altar had horns on the four corners so they could loop the ropes of the animals so they didn't get away. Uh, essentially, that's what they were for. Anyway, it's this big brazen altar that they used. They burned the sacrifices. So there's the altar of sacrifice, and then there's the priest. In those days, it was a Levitical priest, and he was a guy that the, the tribe of Levi, they were the priestly tribe, and the sons of Aaron among the, the tribe of Levi were the ones who did the sacrificial system and all of that. So there's... The altar of sacrifice, there's the priest. Then there's the sacrifice itself. That thing, that animal that was going to die in your place. And then there's you or me. There's the one who's sacrificing. So when somebody went to sacrifice, they would take that animal as a substitute, as I mentioned. Kill it in their place. However, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus fulfills both the roles of the priest and the sacrifice. He's our great high priest. That he is the one that not only is he our high priest, but he is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So what he's doing, what Paul's doing here in Romans is he's changing it up some. He's saying, look, consider the old sacrificial system that now that there's been a death that has taken place, your your life is not required of you. Now I want you to present yourself at the altar of sacrifice as a living sacrifice. When he talks about the body here, it's a reference to our entire being, mind, body, soul, and spirit. He says, present your bodies means that God wants all of you for your entire life. That sacrifice didn't have, that animal didn't have any rights of its own. It's the same thing with us. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. He's saying, God wants all of you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. He doesn't want 
part of your life. He doesn't want a compartmentalized version. We can do that more and more, especially in our era, we can tend to compartmentalize. Well, that's my church life. Well, this is my other life. Well, you know, and, and that we, we can sort of move from one compartment in our lives to another. No, he says, that's not being sold out for me. That's compartmentalized. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want a part-time Christian. He doesn't want a pick-and-choose disciple. Well, I don't like what God's word has to say there because it's convicting or it exposes an area of sin or whatever. He doesn't want us to pick and choose. A living sacrifice doesn't live part-time for him. A living sacrifice doesn't compartmentalize. A living sacrifice doesn't pick and choose. Remember, again, those animals had no rights. So why would he say this? Because folks, that's the right response to his daily showering us with immeasurable mercy. By the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice. It's all by his mercy. It is my response to the mercies that have been shown. That's why he says, I beseech you. I beg you, please consider this. Now, the next thing we see here in verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Again, following what is happening in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system and all that, the qualifications for an Old Testament animal sacrifice was that they be without any outward defect or blemish. Remember in Jesus' day when he took the, 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 made a whip of cords and he turned over the tables of the money changers and he just ripped through the temple. That was on the day of selection where the people were supposed to select a lamb for the Passover. And he got up and he, he saw that they had turned it into a circus. They had turned it into a profiteering circus where the priests would be, if I brought my lamb to, to be, it had to be inspected by the priests. And they go, well, no, we see a little blemish here. It's like, well, where? No, here. I don't see it. Well, sorry, that's how it is. But we have another lamb we can sell you. That was sort of what they were doing. They were, it was called Annas' Bazaar, and it was a, a, a show. That's why Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Uh, it's, it, you turned it into a market. The point is, is that the, the sacrifice had to be without blemish legitimately. In Deuteronomy 15.21, in the law of Moses, concerning firstborn animals, uh, he says, but if there's any defect in it, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you will not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So as we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, Paul's intent here is not an outward blemish or defect. It's not what he's talking about. It's an inward defect of the heart or a wrong heart. So when he says, I want you to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. It's not outward, it's inward. So at my salvation, we've talked about, again, part of being sanctified is God gives me a new heart. He gives me, uh, he, he seats me in the heavenlies. He, he pours it out in my life. And now having given me a new heart, he's going about the work of purifying it, isn't he? He's making my heart holy and acceptable to him. Why? Because that's who he is. That's what he wants. He chooses to conform us to the image of his son. He wants a pure heart. In Matthew 5, 8, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. That's the point. It's an attitude of the heart that God's looking for. Now, it's important to keep in mind here, too, that perfection belongs to Jesus. That's not what's being said. You've got to be perfect or you're not acceptable to God. No, you have been declared perfect. And now he is working in you. He's working in me and he is purifying our hearts. We cooperate. That we cooperate is the important thing. Am I cooperating with the work of his spirit as he is conforming me, as he's doing that work? Or am I kicking against him? What is being said here is that our lives ought to line up. So the last thing we see here in verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Interesting. Now, the word for reasonable is the word logikos. It's where we get the word logic. And, and what it speaks of is being true or genuine. Now, the word for service here is not, it's not speaking of serving, like serving in general. What it's talking about is it's speaking of the service of divine worship. That's why in some translations, it's, it's actually rendered better in the New American Standard. I'll read you 12.1, chapter 12 of, of, uh, of Romans, verse 1 from the New American Standard says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When I'm living for Christ, when I'm allowing his conforming work to happen and take place in my life, it's an act of worship because I am placing value on that. Worth-ship. That's how we get the word. So to sum up this verse, just follow Paul's thinking here. I'm going to paraphrase, but I read, I wrote this last night just as I was wrapping up and thinking, yeah, I just want to be able to say this succinctly. So if you can poke holes in it, that's fine. It's not God's word. It's my version of God's word. What he's saying is I'm not commanding you yet in love. I beg you please to consider the vast mercies of God which have been and are freely poured out on your life. And rightly understanding those mercies ought to drive you to utter surrender of your inner life on the altar of sacrifice. Now now aspiring to choosing to live a life which is fully aligned and in response to the will of God as a continual act of worshipful service. I know that's a lot. And you might think, well, that's a pretty tall order, Pastor. (laughs) How do I actually do this living sacrifice thing? All right, that's great. I understand the theology, but come on. (laughs) I know me. Well, glad you asked. Verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Now, when he talks about the world here, I want you to understand when he says, don't be conformed to this world, he's not talking about the globe. He's talking about this age. Uh, it's the word aeon. It's different from the word cosmos. It's, I don't want to get into the whole Greek thing. But point, the point is, he's talking about don't be conformed to this world system. Don't be conformed to, literally, the system of practices and standards associated with secular society without reference to any interaction or requirements of God. Now, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul talks about this there as well. He says, but God forbid that I should boast, 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what he's saying here is that as we look at what it is to be to not be conformed to this world, we're crucified to the world. The world's crucified to us. We have been set apart, as we talked about, in being sanctified, in being declared holy, in being set apart for God. He's saying a living sacrifice has no rights of its own, but is given to service, effective spiritual service to God. As that being the case, It's not about conformity to the world. It's about transformation of our hearts. Be transformed in the inner man. Think, we live in a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold, doesn't it? All the time. We're faced with that stuff all the time. You turn on the television. You have a conversation with somebody, whether it's on campus or it's out there in the workplace or in your family. And and, and, and there's just that, thing that's going on all the time. And I look at what's happening in our culture in general, and oh my goodness, the 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 effort to conform us to wokeness, the effort to conform us to some political ideology that flies in the face of God's word, the effort to conform us to all kinds of things, isms out there. Folks, be single-minded. Be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not about conformity to the world. It's transformation of our hearts. Now, Kenneth Weiss is a Greek scholar, and, and I, one of the, I, I have several versions of the Bible open when I'm studying. And one of them is his Greek translation of the New Testament. And he breaks it down. It's interesting the way that Weiss does it. He breaks it down into paragraphs, not verses, and because he does it thought by thought. And, and this is what he has to say about the first half of chapter, or verse two here. He says, stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you and is not representative of what you are in your inner being, but is patterned after this age. Essentially, he's saying, stop, redirect. It's not about being conformed to this world. Don't let your life be patterned after the ways of this world. Let your life be conformed to Christ. I was thinking about this. I was reminded of my granddaughter, Sarah, uh, a couple of granddaughters actually that are struggling. We have several granddaughters in California. And I was down there a couple of months ago and, and we were having a talk late one night, just she and I having a heart to heart. And she said, Grandpa, it's tough at school. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I love Jesus. She's 15 years old and, and it blesses my heart to hear that. She says, I love Jesus, and I, I don't want to take part in the conversations. Because girls, I mean, they're talking about sex, and they're talking about all kinds of, you know, drugs, and all the stuff, and it, it, so I just go off by myself, because I don't want to be a part of that. I said, good for you, honey. And she said, yeah, but it's hard. There's times where I, I go off by myself, and I just cry, because I miss having interaction with people. Folks, it's tough out there. It's tough to stand against the world. It's tough to stand up for Christ. As a kid, when peers are so important to you, your circle of friends is so important, but be sure that you're picking a circle of friends that's not going to try to get you to conform to this world. That's not going to try to get you to conform, to, to, to pour you into their mold. I love hearing that from her. Her younger sister, who's 
11, Ella, our granddaughter, told her dad, this is just last week, she said, Dad, could you please homeschool me? And he's, my son, Jesse, he said, I was kind of shocked when she said that because they're in public school. They're in a very conservative community and all that. But still, the world is the world. And he said, why is that, honey? And she said, because I just don't like the sin. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's insightful. And she's a very insightful kid. But it, it, she said, it hurts my heart. It hurts me. Because she's at an age now at 11 where her friends are starting to, there's all the foul language and there's all the stuff and all of that. That's the world trying to get you to conform. And I'll, I'll tell you, it reminds me of that trip to Costco that my wife and I had one day where, you know how Costco, it's like all the carts are going this way and then you go up that way on the other side and all of that. Well, we were pushing our cart to the front of the store and I looked up and I realized, I think I might have shared this at the church before, and I looked at every other cart was going towards us. And so I'm dodging my cart in and out and driving myself crazy with my microphone. So I'm, I'm running my cart in and out, all of that, and I just looked at Stacy and I said, this is kind of like how it is for us as Christians. It's like we're swimming against the tide of this world. We're constantly getting battered and banged and, and you know, the world is coming at us. But God loves a heart that is given to him, a heart that is willing to stand against the pressure to conform to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Here's the principle. That which you feed will grow. That which you starve will die. Straight up. Feed the flesh in any area of your life long enough, it'll become a stronghold. It's, it's like a callus. Yeah, I used to work on these big, tall billboards out on the freeways all the time, and, and I was climbing steel all the time, every day. Climbing steel it was hot, dirty, rough, and I got some callus. Now, I have, <laughs> I have wuss hands now, but I had these thick calluses on my hands that I could grab hot steel and it never bothered me because it, I had it, it built up a, a pad there. That's fine for a physical callus. But we allow ourselves to become callous, to grow calluses on the heart. That's a dangerous thing. What happens, the callus becomes insensitive with repeated abuse. That can happen to us. As we understand the mercies of God, his love and his grace will want to abandon the thought patterns and lifestyles of the world. That's part of the natural flow of what it is to be a son or a daughter of God. So that's the principle. And we're going to wrap up here um, with, practically speaking, again, how do I get this renewed mind? How do I go about that? I mean, I understand. Great. Sounds very, very spiritual, Pastor. And I need to have a renewed mind. And I don't want to stand out and get a, not a world and kingdom and stuff. Let's make it really practical. It's a battle isn't it? It's a battle. But you want to know something? It's a winnable battle. Paul here, he admits that although he walks according to the flesh, as we all do, that, that's not where the battle's fought. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, he says, we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. So he walks according to the flesh. He's tempted the same way as we are. I'm tempted the same as anybody else. 
But the battle is not fought on whether or not I'm tempted. The battle is fought on whether or not I react, whether I respond, whether I entertain, whether I'm allowing myself to be conformed to this world. He wants to make it clear that he doesn't war according to the flesh. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So how do I get around this constant pressure to be conformed to this world? We're talking about carnal weapons here. These are not material weapons such as swords and spears and guns and all that stuff. No, it's not that. What are the weapons? They're the manipulative and deceitful ways of the world. Strongholds in this context are wrong thoughts and worldly perceptions. And folks, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I know what it is to have a head full of wrong thoughts and perceptions. These are things which contradict the knowledge of God as well as the will of God. We're talking about God's will here. Going on in 2 Corinthians 10, he says in verse 5, he says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So the strongholds that we deal with are expressed in arguments. They're things which we in our flesh consider important. They're high things. They exalt themselves against the true knowledge of God. And that's the part where we are being transformed. Reliance on carnal methods and in the habit of carnal thinking are true strongholds all of us face. Every one of us. They stubbornly set down deep roots in our hearts and our minds and influence our actions and our thoughts. However, by taking these thoughts captive, one by one, day by day, moment by moment, our minds are renewed. That's Paul's point. The result, folks, I've said many times, it's not the major decisions in one's life that add up to a changed life. It's those decisions that we make every day, day in and day out, that add up to the composite of those is what adds up to a life. What Paul's talking about here is not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are our minds renewed? We, we take we, we break down those strongholds. We take them captive. We take those thoughts captive before the throne of Christ. And we say, Lord, I know that that's not of you. That's the world's influence. That's my flesh. That's the enemy attacking, whatever it is. And I come to you. I give this to you. I take that thought, ca- thought captive because it exalts itself against the knowledge of you. As I do that consistently, guess what? I grow. I grow in my relationship with Christ. I'm more of a living sacrifice than I was yesterday. I have the ability now to understand that there's the carnal side, there's the spiritual side, and I really need to put down distance. I need to crucify the flesh. I need to feed my spirit. Those are the things that come into play here. When Paul is saying, I beseech you, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service of worship. How do you do that? By not being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? You take those thoughts captive. You cast down the strongholds that have held you in the world's grip. 
and you allow the spirit of God to work in you to build something new. That's the process that every single Christian is engaged in. That's the process that glorifies God in our lives. We're all in process. I get that. But that should never diminish my intentionality on cooperating with the work of God's spirit as he conforms me to the image of his son. And as I put distance down between me and the world, let's pray. Father, a lot to cover in two verses. And yet, Lord, you're so good to us. We pray. I pray for each one here, perhaps those who are watching online. Give us the ability, Lord, to apply your divinely inspired word to our lives. Give us the want to, to put distance between ourselves and the crazy, screwed up, messed up, upside down world. Give us the ability to walk closer with you, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We know that, Lord, as as that, as we want to spirits, you're in it. And so we pray, Father, empower us. Give us the ability, Lord, to be able to call those things on them. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be lived in the Tell us in First John to walk in the light as you're in the light. That's desire. So we pray that you would do that in us. Bring to our remembrance things we've got here. We thank you for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.